my name is Nikki. My name is Charlie. And you're listening to Bed Bed Crime Crime Stories, Stories, a weekly true crime podcast where we pour ourselves a drink and take turns telling each other the stories that keep us up at night. All right. So this week's true crime headline is, well, I have two of them, but the first one is Salt Life co-founder arrested after teen found dead in Florida hotel room. Nice, 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 nice. Um, So this was posted on October 31st. Halloween uh, on News Channel 8 on your side. Um, so one of the co-founders of the popular Salt Life brand was arrested Friday after an 18-year-old woman was found dead inside a South Florida hotel. Salt Life. <laughs> well. <laughs> Jail Life. And the, the brand came out to basically say that they had sold their their part of it. That's probably a good idea. Yeah. Because yeah. I'm like, that brand is very popular. You see it on a lot of vehicles. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then my second story is a husband of bicyclist killed by minivan passenger who leaned out to push her over speaks out. I totally saw this in the news. Tell me the story because I totally saw this the other day. Do you want me to read you the whole story? It's quite interesting, actually. Sure. Yeah. Let's go for it. So this was actually posted on people.com. I love people. I have one from (sighs) people.com. People, people is like... They know people me. People is about the people. People. People is about the people. People is about the information for the people. Yeah. So this was posted on October 29th. Um, and it says the family of a Las Vegas bicyclist who was killed after a minivan passenger reached out and pushed her over is speaking out. So on Sunday morning, the passenger in a passing vehicle reached out and struck a middle-aged woman riding a bicycle, a senseless act that police said resulted in not only the bicyclist's death, but also the death of the passenger. Which, that was the part that I got confused about. Like, okay, obviously sadder for the woman who got hit, who literally by hands, while she was (laughs) cycling down the road. But I don't understand how the person in the passenger side also died. I don't know. Did he don't fall know. out after he pushed her? Well, it says, so this is the thing was first I'm like, why the hell are you you pushing someone off of, that's not funny. That's that's not funny. That's such an asshole move. It is. Asshole move. This is why I have anxiety about doing anything. <laughs> um, while driving down Hollywood Boulevard, they pulled alongside a female bicyclist and the passenger leaned out the vehicle window and pushed her to the ground. A press release from the Las Vegas uh, Police Department obtained by People said. At the same time, the passenger fell out of the moving vehicle and struck a light pole. So he must have been like full on like halfway out of the like vehicle in order to like push her, but then like fell with well, no, that's a lot of force that you have to fall out of this car by, though. But I how mean, fast was the car going? Think of it that way. They were way. pulling up to them, right? Or were they... It doesn't It doesn't really say how fast... They had to be going at a decent speed. A decent speed, yeah. For him to have been killed by striking the light pole. By falling out of the window of a moving vehicle. Yeah. It is the most... In, that is a banana story. That is one of those, like, if it's your time, it's your time yes. type of a situation. Yeah. It was crazy. But, oh I mean, the, the one... The, the driver of the vehicle was 22. So, I don't... It doesn't say how old the person... The pusher was. The pusher was. If it was a male, if it was a female. Wow. It's just really sad. That's... A, that story is... Bananas is the only word I can think of to describe right? that story. I like finding the, like, out there stories that you're just like, what the hell? I don't even understand how, like, I don't understand the physics of it. I, I just, I'm sorry. I'm in, I'm in awe. You're like, I want a reenactment to see how <laughs> that 
happened? <laughs> I need like one of those reenactment shows that does like the assassination of President Kennedy, where they yeah. have like, and then the bullet moved another meter, and it's like literally inch, inch by inch. I need the entire team of President Kennedy assassination reenactors to do this for me, please. Yeah. <laughs> but it was like sad because her husband said that she had picked up the hobby during coronavirus, oh. like during like lockdown and stuff. So it's like. And I just like, I mean, I'm just like, why? I'm definitely, I mean, obviously, I'm saddest for the oh, bicyclist. Yeah. It's very sad for the, it is very sad for the young man who fell yeah. out of the vehicle as well, because I'm sorry, like, obviously you're doing this in jest, not thinking that A, you're going to kill someone and B, you yourself are going to be killed. Oh, yeah. But you know what? My instant karma. One of my old coworkers used to tell me that she used to go running in the neighborhood that my parents lived in and people would throw things out of their car at her. And I'm just like. I, I don't understand. I don't think I don't think that when I'm passing by someone, I'm like, good for you. I wish I was out running right now. Yeah, like I don't understand the motivation. So callers, call in if you can Caller. explain to me, please. Ooh, that was- <laughs> um I I really would love to understand. No, truly, understand like the motivation behind that level of just mayhem. Like, where does that live in your brain of, I'm going to drive down the road and throw things at people who are p- uh, at innocent passersby. Yeah. I don't understand that. I don't That's like people who throw things off of highway overpasses. <gasps> oh, the stress is... Okay, I have such a fear. It's... I have Because such it doesn't make any a sense. fucking fear. Because it's literal senseless Like, I madness. literally... Okay, so I always look up... Yeah, I always look up to make sure that there's no one there because I'm like, I'm so like, I you hear about it and I'm like, it just freaks me out. It's freaky. It's freaky. It's I, I don't scary. like. I don't like it. So no. callers, call in. Call in. We're standing by take to take your calls on this evening. Okay. Uh, wow. So very great headlines. That second story is truly, like I said, the only word I can and think I'm, of is. Bananas. And I'm very excited to kind of. Well, sorry, let me roll back. I'm very interested to see what happens with the salt life thing because I'm very interested to find out what happens with that too. The girls from Lake City, and then also they were talking about how she left voluntarily with someone she knew. Well, so I'm like, how do you get from like uh, like Lake City or wherever it's what Utah to Florida? Salt Lake City. Salt Lake City. Oh. Oh fucking. I don't know. But my whole thing, the thing that confuses me about the salt life guy, is. The whole he was being seen at the hospital for some sort of like a medical emergency, mm-hmm. and then that's when they were able to discover that there was a dead girl in his hotel room. Like, so what was what was the personal injury that forced the cops to go to the to the hotel room in the first place? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm very interested to see how that's well, all going to play out. In the well. one the one thing with him being as well known as he is, you know that we're gonna so get life? updates. Yes. And unlike, like, someone else that it's just some random person, like, it's not really going to go. Mm-hmm. Like, you're going to continue to see updates. Show of hands in this room, and I will tell the listeners out there how many hands are raised. There are three of us in the room right now. Show of hands in this room, how many times, or how long did it take you to realize that that bumper sticker said salt life and not slut life? I always thought it was slut life. I always thought it was slut life. Did you always know it was salt life? Uh-huh. Oh, okay, two out of three. So, <laughs> Jovi and I... Okay, you guys are also from, like, what, New Jersey? Well, yeah, but we, so have, it's like, we have salt life in New Jersey, yo. Yeah. The Atlantic Ocean. I think it's, 
I just, I don't know, I grew up here and I always just read bumper stickers because of Oh, seriously, the font so, on it looks like slut life. So you want to know why I read I'm everybody's like, sure, bumper stickers it. or their license plates is because of Jeepers Creepers. Do you remember that scene? I remember that movie, but I don't remember that scene. You don't scene. remember that scene? We saw Jeepers Creepers 2 in movie theaters. Was it? I thought it was the first That one. was the one in the cornfield? No, that was the oh, first one, dear. N- no. No, the cornfield was the second one. The cornfield with the school bus is the second one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was the, it was yeah. the, the girl and the, the, her brother. Yes. Like that, mm-hmm. I thought, either that or they were dating or they were, they were something. It was a boy and a girl. But they, they were driving in the car and they were just trying to like come up with words for what people's bumper tags, like their driver license plate their license plate got it <laughs> hi we got there it's fine it's teamwork makes the dream work <sighs> though jovi and i did really enjoy seeing mothman prophecies okay all right it's your story time it is my story time okay I'm so mine okay. so i can listen okie dokie so the um the story that i'm going to tell you guys today has um definite personal uh interest for me so this is actually the story that i'm going to be telling you is the story that made me a true crime fan so i know that i had told the story already about the murders of diane and alan johnson that was our first episode that was the uh crime that made me a i guess an obsessive and a uh digester of all media having to do with true crime but this is the murder that first kind of got me hooked on wanting to learn more about um these true crime stories so this uh particular story takes place in my hometown in new jersey um and it was it actually happened just a year after i was born and this is the murder of maria marshall so I have not heard this. Yes. Um, so I have a couple of sources for this. Um, obviously, knowing the story for years and years and years, part of it is my own. Um, my two primary resources, however, were the Criminal Discourse podcast did a great episode um, of this earlier in 2020. So if you guys wanted to check out their episode um, of this murder, I, I did uh, use their Uh, resources and their information a lot in the story Um, and also the true crime novel by joe mcginnis called blind faith um, a best-selling true crime um, novel that was published at the end of the 80s um, about this particular story and then we have of course the local newspaper the asbury park press and the new york times so Uh, Let's dive right in. And it is a long one, folks. I uh, am going to preemptively apologize for the detail that I am about to divulge to you. I always feel like mine are never long enough. (laughs) Like Charlene comes in here with like 10 pages and I'm like... If I have four. Um, it's actually eleven today. Is it? Damn. <laughs> it is. I like really try to like. Even today, I was like, I gotta fluff it up, <laughs> fluff it up more details. Um. Okay. So Robert and Maria Marshall are a prominent couple in Tom's River, New Jersey, when the events of our story begin to unfold in September of 1980. So Robert, the husband, he's 45 years old. He's working as an insurance salesman for the Provident Mutual of Philadelphia. 
Maria is 42. She's a stay-at-home mom, um, and she is raising the couple's three boys. So the oldest son, his name is Robbie. He is 19, and he is currently enrolled at Villanova University. But for this particular semester, he actually was home for the semester. Doesn't really go into detail as to why, so I'm not really sure, but he was home at the time of the events of the story. Their middle son, Christopher, 18 years old, is a freshman at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania. And their youngest son, John Marshall, is 13 years old, and he's in eighth grade at the time. Hmm. So Maria is described as a striking blonde with an athletic build. Um, By all accounts from their friends, from their family, Maria was very easygoing. She had a great personality, and she was an incredibly loving, supportive, and doting mother on the three boys. I'm sure if I was a stay-at-home mom, I would be, too. Yeah, and she was, you know, (laughs) she was definitely that mom who was, like, always at every sporting event and always, you know, cheering the kids on from the stands. Um, Christopher, the middle son, the one who was at Lehigh, he was there on a swimming scholarship, and she was, like, a swim mom she was at all of the meets she was at all the practices and all that stuff so she was she was very involved with the boys lives and in the activities that they were taking part of and stuff like that that's such goals yeah for some people i'm not me well i mean if i could be a stay-at-home dog mom i was gonna say i would be at every single dog bowl drinking contest and anything that my dog wanted to do i mean I think that's that's also one of the reasons that, like, I don't think I would want children is because I know that I couldn't do that. Like, if I was a mom, I'd want to be, like, that involved. Correct. Like, if I'm going to be a mom, I'm going to do it right. Yeah. And I don't think that I would be able to. Yes. Um. Yeah. No, I get that. So Robert and Maria, they first met at high school. They were at a party. They were both living at the time in Pennsylvania. So they, you know, high school sweethearts. And they were married in December of 1963. So the Marshall family lived in a wealthier section of Tom's River. Um, and they were actually members of the Tom's River Country Club. And I feel like every Ooh. single time I say that, I say the Tom's River Country Club, which <laughs> it's actually really not that hoity-toity and snooty, but I always like to say Tom's River Country Club. Um, it's actually really beautiful there. It's really funny because like the Tom's River Country Club is when you look at it from the outside, it's like very 70s, 80s retro looking. But inside, it's absolutely beautiful. One of the best funeral repasses I've ever been to in my entire life was at the Tom's River Country Club. Girls. Fantastic mimosas. I was drunk by like 9 a.m. It was fantastic. Mm. So, yeah. Anyway. I didn't realize that they served liquor at like funeral kind of things they did it this one it was fine with me Shit. it was great you guys are going to the wrong dead people's funerals I, know, I was like i got like a a, a cuban sandwich last time <laughs> i hope people think i'm as funny as you guys do over country club okay anyway so um they also spent a lot of time traveling south to atlantic city to gamble atlantic city is about 55 miles or about an hour drive from tom's river to atlantic city um and it was particularly a favorite pastime of roberts he enjoyed going down there to gamble and eat and and 
take part in the nightlife of Atlantic City. Mm. So on the night of September 6th, 1984, Robert and Maria travel down to Atlantic City and they go to Harrah's Casino for a late dinner, some gambling. Again, just spend some time down there in Atlantic City. On their way home at approximately two, uh, 1230 in the morning, 1230 in the morning, uh, so just after midnight, Robert pulled into a service area off the Garden State Parkway because he thought that the tire may be going flat, like he either felt a shimmy or heard something or whatever. So um, the service area, the where the parking lot of the service area was, you wouldn't have been able to see it from the road. So if you drove by, you wouldn't be able to see it, especially after midnight. Night, yeah. Um, and the way that the service areas are, they're kind of like a pass through between the northbound and southbound with like an opening in the middle for you to park just in mm. case you need to check mm-hmm. your car or get a bite to eat, rest up, whatever. So it's not like how here we have them on each side. It's in the middle. Correct. Exactly. Okay. So like, and it's not an official rest stop where it has like bathrooms and vending machines in a building. It's literally just a service area where you can pull in park take care of what you need to take care of in your car. If you just need to rest up real quick, which I never would, cause that's very unsafe. Oh, no. Or, you know, if you had food in the car, I just need to pull over and grab a bite to eat real quick and then head on my way. Yeah. Or pee in the woods. Cause yeah. I think that's probably what it's used for most. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, Hey, you gotta go. You gotta go. Nature calls, you know? Um, so Robert Marshall gets out of the car he checks to see what's going on with the tire. And as he bends over, he's knocked unconscious. When he wakes up, he has a head wound. He's bleeding. And any money that he wanted the casino was missing from his pants pocket. He walks up to the car and his wife, Maria, was face down across the front seat of the car in a puddle of blood. So Robert runs towards the parkway. He starts flagging down cars. Finally, somebody stops. Um, the car that stops goes up to the next exit, finds a payphone, calls 911 because, you know, hey, no cell phones in 1984. What's up? Um, and the police arrive on the scene. So when the cops get there, Robert tells them what happened, that he didn't see anything. He didn't hear anything. Um he, like I said, was checking the tire, got struck on the head. Next thing he knows, this is what he wakes up to. So he's taken to the hospital. They clean his wounds, give him stitches, and then he's released to go back home. Before he goes back home, actually at the hospital, one of his priests from the church that he belongs to, which is the local Catholic church, St. Joseph's, um, meets him at the hospital and goes back to the house with him to be with Robert when he tells his sons that Marie is dead. So Robert tells Robbie and John, oldest, youngest boy of their mother's passing, because Chris is away at school. Police arrive at the residence and take Robert down to headquarters to get his formal statement about the events. Robert's story is is basically saying that somebody must have followed him and saw him at the blackjack table winning money and followed him and Maria home or tried to follow them home. And then when they saw him pull into the rest stop, decided to rob him. Um, so he finishes giving his statement. He heads back home. By the time he gets back into the house, there's people at the house. People are starting to gather. People are starting to call, send their condolences because the crime is now already on the local news. Does not take long for news to travel that this prominent insurance salesman in town, um, was attacked and his wife was killed. So I'm always trying to figure out if it's, if it's always the husband though, (laughs) because I'm like, he's an insurance salesman right right so yeah 
So later that same day, so still the same day of the crime, right? Because you figure it happened early that morning on the 7th. Robert gets in his car. He drives out to Lehigh in Pennsylvania. He tells his middle son, Christopher, what happens, brings him back home. Um, Robbie, the oldest boy, starts to feel as though his father's kind of keeping it together a little bit better than he'd expect. Like he was shocked at how composed Robert was staying during not only just like the trauma of dealing with his mom dying, but even the trauma that he went through of being robbed and attacked and all this stuff. So I'm not wrong. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll never tell. So, uh, well, I will in a couple pages. So he actually told the police that Robert had already made that same day. Robert already made arrangements for her to be cremated for Maria's body to be cremated and for her funeral to be held on September 10th. So like three days from the day that she was That's killed. Quick. Very quick. So one of the people that showed up at the house um, that day was Robert's brother-in-law, who happened to be a lawyer. So how ironic he's a brother-in-law in law. law. (laughs) Okay. Wow. I've been waiting all day to say that. Do you write that? No, I didn't. Oh, okay. I just made sure I committed it to my mom. I don't know if you had like a side note. Make sure you make this joke. Pause for laugh. No, I didn't. So the brother-in-law kind of pulls him aside and they, he has like sits Robert down to have a private conversation with him about here's the realty type of thing. Like what's really going on. This is kind of where we need to kind of have a, a, a real heart to heart here. So he tells Robert that he needs to come clean about the affair he's been having with a married woman who also belongs to the country club. And the reason why he knows that Robert is having an affair is because his wife Maria knew that Robert was having an affair. She found hotel receipts um, and phone bills pointing to evidence that he was cheating on her. So the phone bills that she found showed a phone number to a local high school where this woman was employed as a vice principal. Holy shit. And he had called her like 50 times a month to talk to her while she was at work. Twice a day. Yeah. Yeah. Like twice pretty a day. much. Yeah. Like, dude, put some ice on it. So, no, nobody's going to laugh at that. Okay. No. Okay. <laughs> Wait. Pause for laugh. Okay. Did it, put some ice on did it. Like, it I think it went cold over. shower. Oh, I was like, did it go over <laughs> my head? Um, all right. So, Robert does admit to the affair. He's basically saying, I'm in a midlife crisis. I'm bored with my life. We're in love. We're going to run away together. The typical. But that's when you go to therapy and you're like, what? That's when you get a divorce. Well, that too. Like. But try to fix it before you just are like. Yeah. He also admits not only to having the affair, but he also admits to having some financial troubles. So the financial troubles right now are being over $300,000 in debt. So. Um, and of course, at this point, you know, he's used to lear- living at a certain level of comfort. Well, and that's like the 80s. So like. It's a lot more now. It's yeah. probably like a million dollars. Do you want to convert it? I was going to say convert it because I'm like 300,000 is just a lot. 300,000 in today's money. of 1984 money in 2020 money. Because I mean, that was like 40 years ago. Yeah, I know. And rub it in. Calm down. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, I'm 31. <laughs> It's like 40 years. Yeah, we get it. We know it's almost 40 years ago. In the value of $300,000 from 1984 to 2020 um, is about equivalent to 
$751,530.32. So a double. Yeah. So essentially, essentially yeah. it's a little more than double the amount how of 1984, 300000 How do you get that far in debt? Um, I don't know. Um, but like I said, so he's he's used to living in a certain level of comfort. You have three sons. You have a wife who's a stay-at-home mom. Uh-huh. And of course, obviously, I'm not besmirching that life. I'm just saying that, you know, you guys live in a very wealthy area. You're only making so much money. Eventually, it's going to catch up with you as you continue to live that life and your dollar isn't going to stretch as far, you know? Yeah. And by August 1984, no banks or credit card companies were extending him loans or increasing his spending limits. And he blames Maria's spending habits on their crippling debt. However, she found a 100000 home equity loan against their home that Robert had forged her signature on. Oh, fuck no. Yeah. So she knew about everything that was going on. And apparently, according to the brother-in-law, she had the plan that she was going to confront Robert with all of the evidence that she had found on Monday, September 10th, ironically the day that Robert had planned her funeral. So just big coincidence there. Um, Robert's brother-in-law also told Robert that Maria had hired a private detective to have him followed. And Robert makes this like weird backhanded comment that if if he had only knew about the private detective, then none of this would have happened. So when the brother asked him like what he meant by that, he said, you know, well, if she told me that she knew about the affair, I could have left her sooner and then we wouldn't even have been in Atlantic City that night. So, yeah. Blame Maria. It's her fault. It's her fault that you're having an affair. And she's dead, right? Yeah. yeah. So, <clears throat> um, his brother-in-law asked if he had any life insurance out on Maria, to which he replied he did, and that it was a good sales strategy. So, to play devil's advocate on this, Robert Marshall is a insurance salesman. Yeah. It makes sense that he would have insurance out on his family members, right? Yeah. I mean, if you're an insurance salesman, you got to believe in the product that you're selling, so you're going to buy the product you're selling and use that as a sales strategy. I have this much money out on my wife. It's just a good investment, you know, that type of a thing. Or you could say it and not actually do it. Right, and you can also make it for a little less because at the time of Maria's death, she was worth $1.5 million deceased. So, but you yeah. can't get that if the person was murdered, if you murdered the person. You really can't. Yes. Okay. So you are definitely not eligible for that Because I was like, I thought it was like. You kind of forfeit your right. Well, I forget what I was watching, but the, the person was like, they were like, I can't kill myself or my daughter's not going to get this. I have to be killed by you. But mm. it wasn't like that person was claiming it. Mm-hmm. It well, was like, they it was a TV say- show though too. So how. Well, what's his face? Um, oh, the football player from the Patriots. Who killed that guy and is now dead? He oh, Alex Hernandez. Alex. Was that Her- who was his name was? Wasn't Alex. I don't know. Aaron Hernandez. Maybe Aaron yeah, Hernandez. Why am I thinking Alex? Um, but the reason why they believe he wound up killing himself is he he was still getting his pension from the NFL at that point. Something something to do with his pension, and. If he had gone to trial, because he never wound up getting indicted for, I think, the second murder. Something, there was something going on. There was basically two murders. He hadn't gotten indicted yet for the second one. If he had gotten indicted for the second one, he would have forfeited his pension or whatever. So he killed himself so his daughter would still get the money. Uh, Don't quote me on the middle part, but. Yeah. (laughs) 
watch the documentary. It's fantastic. And maybe one day I'll do Aaron Hernandez. Who knows? Yeah. Um, that is actually a very interesting story. It's a very interesting story. But anyway. Yeah. He wound up killing himself so that his way his daughter would still get the settlement. Um, okay. So this all started because Robert's brother-in-law was advising him to tell his sons about the affair basically was saying you need to tell your sons about the affair because it's going to wind up in the newspaper and they're going to find out anyway so be a man basically and tell your sons what's going on yeah um but he also warned robert and said you're more than likely going to be a person of interest so here are all the red flags that are currently stacking up against robert so husband having an affair planning on leaving his wife Husband having deep financial difficulties. Wife has $1.5 million in life insurance on her. She gets shot in his car in like this abandoned parking lot in the dark. And he only gets a small injury to his head. So there's all of these glaring red flags of just like, they're going to at least look at you. Well, Robert tells his brother-in-law, you know, I hear what you're saying, but there's no possible way police are going to look at him. He felt as though he was way too prominent in Tom's River and that the cops wouldn't touch him because they all knew who he was and he was just too important for them to arrest him. So. Man, I want that confidence. (laughs) Seriously. For real. So the last piece of advice that the brother-in-law has for Rob is go ahead and get yourself a lawyer, which of course at this point Rob has already done. So I was like, he he was like, that was probably I'm not going to help you, but you should probably exactly. So you know the craps, not the craps. I mean those were too. The cracks were beginning to show, as were the craps. Um, but the cracks were beginning to show. Not only were people around him starting to be like, oh, I think Robert might be guilty. The middle, their middle son, Chris was also starting to really doubt his father and really doubt his father's um, innocence because of all those red flags that I mentioned before, you know, the rumor mill is beginning to spin and Chris is starting to say, look, there's just way too many coincidences for this to be anything, but what we're kind of thinking this is. So, mm-hmm. Um, as investigators begin their searching into the case, they're contacted by a lawyer that Maria had hired prior to her death to draw up papers to file for both bankruptcy and divorce. The lawyer gave investigators notes from Maria stating that she had had more information against Robert and the information included three telephone numbers that had Louisiana area codes. Police took the phone numbers and they were able to connect one of the numbers to a store clerk in Louisiana named Robert Cumber. So since our prime uh, subject here, Robert Marshall has the same name, I'm just going to call him Cumber. I'm going to call him by his last name. So Cumber states that in May of 1984, he met both Robert and Maria Marshall at a birthday party for a mutual family friend. He and Robert got to talking and he was asking Robert advice about investments and IRAs and things like that. And Robert had asked Cumber if he knew of anyone he could hire as an investigator because he didn't want to use anybody local. And again, mostly because he was very well known in town. He didn't want to hire anybody locally because people would find out he was hiring a private investigator. So Cumber referred Robert to a man named Billy Wayne McKinnon. Um, also from Louisiana, who was a former police detective. So Cumber's assumption, McKinnon, he's a former detective. He can help you with this investigation, whatever it is that you're looking to do. So McKinnon contacts Robert and he agrees to come to Atlantic City 
in New Jersey to meet Robert for a sum of $5,000. So police returned to New Jersey after questioning Cumber. They went to Marshall's house and spoke to him and say, you know, have you heard of the name Jimmy Davis from Shreveport, Louisiana, or Billy Wayne McKinnon? So police say that Robert has like a very obvious reaction when he hears these names, but no, no, no. And according to, you know, and, uh, I'm not to answer any of your questions at the, on the advice of my lawyer. So he clams up. He doesn't say anything. Now, a couple of days after this, uh, exchange with cops, Robbie, the oldest Marshall son winds up taking a phone message for his father at their house from Jimmy Davis asking for Roger, Robert to call him back. On September 26th, so 20 days Day after, after my birthday. Oh, look at that. So on September 26, 1984, news broke that Robert Cumber was indicted by a grand jury in Ocean County on the charge of conspiracy to commit murder in connection with Maria Marshall's death. Cumber acted as an intermediary who passed messages between Robert Marshall and Billy Wayne McKinnon. So Cumber was a middleman between McKinnon and Marshall. The next day after Cumber's indictment, Robert Marshall checks into a nearby hotel and attempts to commit suicide by overdose, but he fell asleep after mixing sleeping pills and a can of Coke. It's not really relevant to the story. I just wanted to kind of put that out there because I really don't like this guy. I so, mean, how many <clears throat> sleeping pills did he take? 50 sleeping pills and a can of Coke. Really? Yeah. And then he just fell, fell asleep. asleep and then he woke up. Then he woke up. <clears throat> we are going to go now through the, the events in order of what is found out by police. So here's the actual story of what happened that fateful evening. So Robert Marshall and Billy Wayne McKinnon meet on June 8th, 1984 at Harris Casino in Atlantic City. Obviously, Marshall's big fan of Harris. Uh, Robert Marshall offers to pay him $65,000 in addition to the 5000 he already paid to get McKinnon to Atlantic City to kill his wife. McKinnon once again returned to Atlantic City on uh, July 19th, 1984, and he met with Robert at his insistence, wanting the job done that very evening when he and Maria would be out. So uh, Robert Marshall tells McKinnon, I'm going to drive in the car with Maria and go into a restaurant to use the bathroom. While I'm inside using the bathroom, you come to the car and kill her and make it look like a robbery. Well, McKinnon was unable to complete the job that night because the parking lot that Robert Marshall chose to park in was well lit and busy. Not very bright. Not as bright as that parking lot that he parked in. Um, Okay, so Robert Marshall was desperate. He wanted to have the murder completed. So he was like on a mission. He offered McKinnon an extra $15,000 if he would come back before Labor Day. So like basically put a deadline on it. I will give you more money. This just needs to get done like pronto. And honestly, I think it was more for more just the money reasons of like, I can't live like this anymore because they're already not giving me any more loans or more money on my credit cards. She needs to be dead soon so I can pay off my debt and start like living the sweet life of Zach and Cody again, you know? Oh, sorry. (laughs) I am. I know. I wish I was that punny. So McKinnon comes back on September 6th, 1984. And he meets Robert at the service parking area located south of Tom's River on the Garden State Parkway. And they scout the service area where the murder would eventually be carried out. 
So again, it's to be made to look like a robbery. So on that same day, uh, Rob and Maria take Robbie, their oldest son, out to lunch and let him know we're going to be going to Atlantic City tonight. Basically, Rob is just kind of or Robert is trying to like get his ducks in a row. We're yeah. going to Atlantic City tonight type of a thing, you know. So they head to Atlantic City. They go to Harrah's gambling dinner, all of that fun stuff. 930 p.m. He excuses himself, goes outside and meets McKinnon. And tells him that he, they'd be leaving around midnight and they gave him, he gave him like 800 bucks. Kind of like, we're good for the money. Here's 800 bucks. The plan imagine, is going down. Imagine like literally sitting across from someone having dinner with them, realizing that you're paying to have them killed. Like you have to have no fucking heart. Like I just, I don't understand that co- compartmentalization that you have to have in your brain to be able to put put that like fake face on i'm like i just i don't know how you can like literally go out and have like a good night with someone and then like know that you know that this they're literally going to die in like four hours yeah like i just don't know yeah. how i don't know what the fuck i know he's diabolical he's diabolical the other fifteen thousand, he said would be in his pocket so you come you do the hit the 15 grand that I owe you will be in my pocket. So they leave the casino around midnight as planned. And at 12.30 p.m. Or I'm sorry, 12.30 a.m., Robert pulls into the prearranged meeting spot, which is the service area off the Garden State Parkway at the Oyster Creek picnic area. So McKinnon had actually already dropped off the shooter, Larry Thompson, at the picnic area. So Larry Thompson was a mechanic from Louisiana, and he was literally just a guy. At this point... From what I can understand, at this point, Larry Thompson had no connection to this whatsoever. McKinnon and Marshall were really the only two that were kind of in cahoots about the whole murder part of it. Um, The guy that we talked about earlier was the go-between, just kind of Mm -hmm. connected the two. And Thompson was just a guy that McKinnon brought with him and said, hey, I'll give you a cut of the money. You pull the trigger. And Maria found these phone numbers. Maria found the three so phone numbers So she found the Louisiana. three phone numbers of the people that were basically... Eventually were going to kill her. That's fucking crazy. That's fucking crazy. Yeah. So, um... Larry Thompson was already there at the picnic area. Um, once he dropped off Thompson, McKinnon kind of drove, turned around, got off the exit, came back the up next exit, and basically just stayed there waiting to watch Robert drive by so once robert drives by he waits two minutes and then follows him back into the service area maria was lying across the front seat presumably asleep when rob exited the car on the pretense of looking at the flat tire and as he squatted down um he was hit on the back of the head as per the plan Uh, i'm sorry front of the head uh on his forehead as per their plan and maria was shot twice in the back and died soon after Thomas was to take the promised 15000 out of Robert's pocket, but only found $2,000 of the agreed upon amount because Robert's an asshole. I don't know, like, like he's even shitty at being shitty. Like he's a shitty guy to even shitty people. God. Like, sorry. I, I'm surprised they didn't shoot him at that point. For like, real. For, for real. It's like, bro, you promised me 15000 you and you're me giving two? me 2000 For real. I'm just going to shoot you for it unbelievable so when mckinnon arrived thomas jumps in the car and then quickly gets out he kind of runs back and he slashes the tire to make it look like there was actually something wrong with the tire for robert marshall which i wouldn't have done that i would have been like no you you go down for this bro thanks for my two grand 
Um, okay. So on January 28th, 1986, so about a year and a half later, the investigation is over, arrests are made, and the trials of Robert Marshall and Larry Thompson begin in Atlantic County, New Jersey. Um, both were charged with first degree murder with special circumstances. The special circumstances in this case being murder for hire. So that is what he was calling for. It was not an investigation murder for hire that's crazy yeah um so this was actually being charged as er, tried as a death penalty case so billy wayne mckinnon makes a reappearance here as the state's star witness against robert and larry so in a plea deal for a later sentence he agrees to testify against robert and larry and in turn serves just five years in prison for his role in the murder of maria marshall uh, don't love that he only got five years. Do love that he got these guys uh, thrown in jail. Well, you'll see. Guy thrown in jail. The defense tried to paint uh, McKinnon as a liar. Basically said that he, it was him all along. He was the one who carried out the murder. And he's, you know, inflating the amount that Robert supposedly bought him or offered him in order to get him a lighter sentence and avoid the death penalty. So basically just trying to paint him as a shysty shyster and does not seem to work because um, there's so much more evidence against Robert Marshall that what McKinnon McKinley said, or what's his name? Mm-hmm. McKinnon. I was there the first time. What McKinnon said really with all the other evidence was kind of dropping the bucket. So the trial at the trial, the state also introduced all the life insurance policies that Robert had taken out against Maria. So, it not only included the money I was talking about earlier, the $1.5 million, with an additional 600000 set aside for his children, it also included a 130000 policy that was purchased just hours before she was murdered. What was that one for? Like if she's murdered? No, more money. Oh, more money. He, okay. He took out an additional 130000 Sorry, you know that there's like certain policies if you die like a certain way, you get like additional money? Well, yeah. So I didn't know if it was like yeah. one of those like specific no, policies? Basi- no, it was basically just like, let me try and squeeze as much money out of my dead wife as I possibly okay. can. So let me get this additional 130000 policy hours before I get her killed. Because again, trash. How does he not think that that looks not suspicious? Like, because I think he thought that, well, I think there was a couple things. Number one, I think he thought that the him being a life insurance salesman made this look okay because there was a reason for it. I'm using air quotes audience because there's a reason for it. But then on top of that, I think he really thought he was untouchable. I think he thought that he was above the law because these all these cops knew who he was. I think I think insurance people make me more nervous than anything because I, sometimes I feel like they're they're not. I don't know. I think everybody's insane. Eight insurance companies also testified to Marshall taking out policies just in the year prior to Maria's murder. So a bulk of the insurance policies he took out all happened within the 12 months previous to her being murdered. So again, like you're obviously planning for something. This is obviously premeditated. Yeah. Robert's mistress also testified. Um, She talked about their 14 month long affair in which Robert had a conversation with her in December of 1983 and told her that um, it's Maria's fault that they're in all of this debt because of her spending habits. And he told his mistress that if he could just get rid of her, the insurance he had out of Maria would cover his debts. So probably again, shouldn't say things like that to people if you're planning something. Probably not a good idea. Probably not a good idea. Because she'd probably be like, are you going to do that to me? 
I mean, for real. And like, seriously, you don't think that that's what's going to happen. And then once it happens, you're like, oh my God, he said that he was going to do this. Like, what is wrong with me not seeing the red flag, you know? On cross-examination, the prosecutor questioned Robert's testimony in which he claimed that he had an undying love for his wife. So the prosecutor asked him, why then were Maria's ashes still in a box at the funeral home? So he didn't pick up her ashes? Never even picked up her ashes. Marshall's reply was that they were planning on burying her in Florida, but he got arrested before he could before he could do that. Robert had three months between Maria's funeral and his arrest that he had all that time to pick up his uh, pick up her ashes. And not only did he not pick up her ashes from the funeral home, he had even gone to Florida by himself within that three month period. Are you ready for this? To begin a relationship with another woman that he knew from Tom's River, who had since moved to Florida with her husband. The two couples were friends together when they all lived in Tom's River at the country club. This guy is... I want to see what Okay, I'm like. actually going to... I'm going to read the quote from the prosecutor because it's the perfect explanation of who this person is. The prosecutor says in his closing ar- arguments that Robert Marshall is a coward, he is self-centered, he is greedy, he is desperate, he is materialistic, and he's a liar. And on March 5th, 1986, Robert Marshall was convicted of murder and sentenced to death. This was determined after a 25-minute penalty phase hearing two days after his um, conviction came down. Larry Thompson, however, was acquitted as being the actual shooter and walked free after the judge read the verdicts. So let's do a quick where are they now and then we can look up his picture for you so you can oh, get yeah. to see uh, what that, I want to see her and him. So you can see what living garbage actually looks like. Yeah. Um, well, he's not living anymore. We'll get to that in a minute. But first, let's talk about Larry Thompson. So Larry Thompson, the, uh, the alleged shooter finally confessed to his involvement in the murder of Maria Marshall, claiming that he was indeed the gunman um, who killed her in the early morning hours of September 7th, 1984. He actually confessed in May of 2014. Holy shit. Was it a deathbed confession? No. No? Um, He was actually in jail (laughs) for shooting somebody else in a crime very similar to the crime that he had committed in 1984. And um, he was 12 years into a 50-year sentence that he was serving for that crime. And the former head of the major crimes unit in Ocean County, New Jersey, went down to interview him because he was convinced that this guy was the guy. He was good for it, you know. And Thompson said, yeah, it was me. I did it. But because of double jeopardy laws in the U.S. Constitution, he, he can't get tried again, right? Because he was already found not guilty. And... Anybody who didn't, who um, altered their testimony to protect him was protected because the statute of limitations on perjury runs out in five years in New Jersey. So it was already passed. So nobody could get in trouble for the fact that Larry Thompson actually murdered her. Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier in the story, um, one of my main resources and actually one of the main resources of the podcast that I got the information from um, was the novel by Joe McGinnis called Blind Faith, um, which I'll talk about that in just a moment. But in 2002, Robert Marshall, brilliant, brilliant man, wrote a book called Tunnel Vision, Trial and Error, in which he challenged the conclusions that McGinnis drew in Blind Faith. It reminds me very much of when O.J. Simpson decided that he was going to write the book, If I Had Done It. Friggin' idiot. Like, you're that much of a pompous ass. I want to know the people that actually bought this. How many? How many? <laughs> Who knows? Like, how many actually copies actually sold? Correct. 
Uh, who know? We can look that up too because I do not know. Um, I'd be intrigued. In- so he challenges all of Joe McGinnis's uh, conclusions from blind faith, and he also points out the flaws in the judicial process that he believes failed him. Oh, and that was a sarcastic. Oh, and uh, Marshall also alleged uh, that his trial was contaminated by police misconduct and compromised testimony and evidence. Poor guy. Um, due to changes to New Jersey's death penalty rules, however, Marshall does qualify eventually for a new trial um, for his sentencing phase because of the way that the rules change for death penalty sentences specifically. And in January 2015, his sentence was changed. And it was changed from uh, death to 30 years to life with parole possible after 30 years. Well, 2014 was 30 years. So in January of 2015... A parole board hearing for Marshall, it would have been his first, was approved and was scheduled for March, March of 2015. Marshall's two oldest sons, Robbie and Christopher, vowed to speak in front of the board against their father's release. Um, But it was noted that their younger brother, John, had unfortunately, conversely, always believed that Robert Marshall was innocent and did not kill his mother. However, with his health reportedly failing in the months prior following a debilitating stroke, Robert Marshall died in Southwood State Prison in Bridgeton, New Jersey on February 21st, 2015, never getting to see his appeal court date. Good. Yeah, I love that part. Okay, that's my favorite part. (laughs) Um, And to kind of close out the story, uh, this is just kind of a fun tidbit of information that kind of gives it a little bit of a happy ending in the hardest way that you can give a story like this a happy ending. So um, the true crime book on the case, Blind Faith, was published in 1989 by Joe McGinnis. It became a bestseller and was adapted into an Emmy-nominated 1990 TV miniseries of the same name. It is wonderful. You should find it. It's fantastic. Starring Robert Urich as Robert Marshall and Joanna Kearns as Maria. Joanna Kearns also played the mom in Growing Pains. Oh, mm -hmm. Pains. I love Grammys. Um, during filming, Joanna Kearns became very close with the Marshalls' oldest son, Robbie, because he was serving as a consultant on the miniseries. She winds up introducing Robbie to actress Tracy Gold, who played Joanna Kearns' daughter on Growing Pains. Robbie and Tracy Gold get married in 1994 and are currently raising four sons together. Aww. Which that just like is a fun, happy ending. Yeah. Like that's just a fun, happy ending. And again, um, actually, Jovi and I were kind of talking about it a little bit on the way over here to record. And I told her that little bit. And she's like, you know, it's it's obviously nobody's saying that when when it's something's that when something is that tragic of Maria Marshall dying the way that she did because she didn't have to all because her husband was a greedy prick. You want to try and find that silver lining. Mm -hmm. So to find that silver lining in the fact that. It took the death of his mom for Robbie to find the the love of his life and for his four sons to be born. And like, he wouldn't have those babies if his Mm -hmm. mom never was killed, you know? So it's, you know, to try and pull some positive out of this awful tragedy that is the death of Maria Marshall, um, you know... That's awesome. uh, It's kind of cool. And honestly, you know, this is super selfish and not at all important, relevant, or great for anybody but me and maybe the other two people in this room but honestly if it wasn't for this case i probably wouldn't literally be sitting here right now doing the podcast because who knows if i would even be into true crime so um like this was kind of the 
I mean, it kind of kickstarted our path to get here too. So Mm -hmm. I don't know, just, you know, it's, it gives you, puts in perspective of the, everything happens for a reason, no matter how tragic or how bad it might be. Mm -hmm. So I wish the Marshall children the best. Um, Robbie, Christopher, and uh, John are always people that I think about anytime I go back to visit New Jersey and I drive through the neighborhood and I go up and down the Garden State Parkway. I always think of the three of them and Maria and hope that somewhere they are all doing very well. So that is mm-hmm. the story of the murder of Maria Marshall. May she rest in peace. Yay. That was a good one. I'd never heard of that. Um, all right. So guys, as per usual, go ahead and make sure that you are subscribed to our podcast wherever you listen and uh, catch a new episode every Thursday when they are live Thursday evenings. We like to drop them right before bedtime because, you know, that's how we do. You can also find us on our social media accounts, both Instagram and Twitter. Um, on both of those, we are at Bed Crime Stories. So again, we will catch you guys next week. Rate, subscribe, like, tell a friend, do all the things. Do all the things. We love you guys. Um, Mm -hmm. So have a great week and we'll see you next time. And until then, sweet Sweet dreams. dreams. Our theme song is the song Industrial Music Box by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. Creativecommons.org backslash licenses backslash by backslash 3.0.